It's good to be back. Uh, yes, I was gone to Nepal for the last two weeks, so I have a little bit of jet lag, so I cannot vouch for the uh, coherency of the sermon today. But for some of you, uh, that's like, what else is new? <laughs> I had to beat him to it. <laughs> Before we jump into the text, though, um, <clears throat> look on the back of the, the uh, bulletin. Last year, three times last year, we tried something. Uh, it was your suggestion that we have a Q&A, kind of a lunch time to process certain things after church. And uh, we really enjoyed it. So we're going to do another one today. Today, the topic's on diversity. We talked about that two weeks ago, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more again today because it begins to appear in the book of Romans. And so we're having a Q&A luncheon right afterwards. If you want to stay and ask questions and talk about it and talk about some of the things that we talked about, why is this important? Why did God make us different? It's essential core part of creation that he did. So let me invite you to that. Also, you'll notice on there that Pub Theology tonight, for those of you that go to that, is also devoted to the same. We're going to have a discussion on that. And then two weeks from today, we have an inquires class. If you want to learn more about our church, we invite you to come. There's a sign up out in the uh, out on the Welcome Center there. And then on April 12th, you might put this on uh, your calendar. We have another Seder dinner, Passover Seder dinner. How many of you came to the last one? So, yeah, a good portion of you. It sold out. We filled this whole place, and it was a waiting list. So put that on your calendar if you want to be a part of that. All right, let's, um, let's stop and pray before we get into this concept of holiness. Um, once again, I'm just reminded, having just come back from uh, a third-world country, just how much we need the Lord. You know, a school, there was not a school, but a shooting this morning in Denver made the news this morning, and maybe you saw the Ethiopian Airline jet that crashed, killed 157. Ethiopian Airlines is a great airlines. I've flown them more than once. And everywhere I look, I just reminded once again how grateful I am to be a Christian and uh, to serve the Lord. So let's just stop and pray. Father, we do look around us in the world, and these are just two small examples, and there's many, many more. Lord, I came back with a whole... Uh, truckload of examples once again of how how good you are as God. And uh, Lord, we, we need you. We need, we need your redemption. We need the things that you bring to us. Thank you for this series. I know I'm enjoying it, and I pray that you'd bless our time today as we uh, jump a little bit more into this concept of holiness. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so I just came back from Nepal, and I had uh, several things happen. I'll share some of them over time with you. Uh, but one story I want to share with you this morning. The, um, the organization I work with, we, we purchase or rescue kids or kidnap kids out of the sex trade. And we scatter them around Christian homes and children's homes to raise them. And um, you won't find this information online. I'm not going to show you a picture of the young lady I'm going to talk about. Uh, but four years ago, she, she, uh, they actually kidnapped this one. They came across the fact that she was um, owned by another man. And so they, they kidnapped her. <clears throat> and so I've had the chance of connecting with her every year. This is my fourth year of connecting with her. She is um, missing an eye. Her owner, um, through the process of 
sexually abusing her caused her to lose an eye. So when she came to us, um, she was missing an eye. And when I saw her this time, I noticed that her, I couldn't tell that she was missing an eye. So I talked to uh, one of the people in charge, one of my friends, and he said, yeah, he said, uh, we raised the money to get her a glass eye that matches the other one. And so, uh, and she had the surgery, so the eyes track. You can't even tell. And it's the first time that I've seen her that she actually smiled at me. Uh, <clears throat> she's now 15. She's been with us four years. It's an evil world. There's no other way to say it. We have problems in our own country. They have problems in their country. Every country I go to, they have problems. Every country I go to, I am reminded regularly of how desperate we are. This time, she smiled. First time I've seen her smile, actually. And I said, uh, do you remember me? She shook her head, yes. And uh, she came up and put her arm through mine. And... Uh, it's the first time she's ever shown any physical affection. You can imagine the trauma she's gone through. I mean, she came to us at 11 and already had a life of abuse. And so um, it's taken that long to even get enough healing to have her smile and just want to be close because she knows that I'm trustworthy. That's a story of redemption. This is why we exist as a church. This is why. If you ask me later, I'll be glad to show you the picture of her. Um, but this is why we exist as a church, because this is real life for many people. Uh, I've said many times, this is an illusion. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Every one of you has some level of trauma and brokenness in your own life. I get that. Um, but this is an illusion here. And for those of you that work in the county with with people that are struggling and broken, you know what I'm talking about. So this is why we exist as a church, redemption, to take somebody that is hurting and broken in every way you can measure and to bring life back to them, to give them the gift of life. We're in a series on holiness, a heart fully devoted to the Lord, fully devoted to God. And I've asked numerous times, when you think of holiness, do you think of it as an invitation into a deeper walk with a God who cares? Or do you think of it as a bunch of rules and regulations? Your background will often dictate how you naturally look at that. And so, and I look at this young lady, and I have many more stories just from this trip alone. Um, I look at this young lady, and I think, this is the God that we serve. That he would cross our paths, enable us to kidnap her, and over four years to begin to bring life to brokenness. That's the God that we serve. Holiness is not about rules. Holiness is about a God who made us a certain way and that if we live life the way he has encouraged us to live us, and I use the word encouraged because he's not, he doesn't force himself on us. If we live life the way he encourages us, we find the deepest joy possible. Proverbs lays out two paths, the path of foolishness and the path of righteousness. The path of foolishness makes lots of promises. I told the pastors last week, you know, I had several hundred pastors at the conference, I like to sin. Let's be honest. I suspect I'm not alone. The flesh is always, the heart is always drawn to this. 
And, but I know enough at this stage to know of the brokenness that will result. To know of the, the hurt and pain that that will cause. And so it's a real challenge to stay on this journey because it's harder, it takes longer, but the joy is far deeper and more rewarding. That's what holiness is all about. God is asking us to live a life a certain way because he created us and he knows that we'll be filled with deeper joy if we take this path. That's what holiness is all about. It is an invitation to come closer to the Lord on his terms. He is God. Let's not forget that. To come closer to him on his terms because of what we will enjoy in the long run. When that happens, that's what holiness is about. So we spent quite a bit of time in the Old Testament. Now you, let's put the put the whole year together. We've been t- talking about this for a year. We started uh, almost a year ago at the amphitheater talking about the Beatitudes, the Great Reversal. Remember that, where we talked about the very things that culture despised, looked down on, you know, the weak, all of that. That those are the very things that Jesus exalted and said, no, these are actually the people that are blessed. Um, <clears throat> And that's true. History has borne that out. These are the people that are truly blessed. They don't have anything to lose. They don't have much to have that anyway in life. And so we talked about the great reversal. Then last fall we moved in. We kept that theme going, the great reversal, into the Sermon on the Mount and looked at his teachings, which were so, so countercultural and shocked the world, shocked the, the people of that day that heard it. Um, And then we move from there into this concept of holiness, which is just an extension of that. So here are some of the things we picked up in our study in the Old Testament. Number one, the Old Testament teaches us that God's goal for us is that we should live in fellowship with him. That's what we were created for. We're made for that. And we feel incomplete when we don't have it. It's hard to get there. It takes faith. It takes faithfulness. It takes discipline. But second of all, we learn that God is not of this world. He is the only one who can rightfully be called holy. He is holy. We are not. He is God. We are not. We may not like the things sometimes that we read about him, but he is God. And we need to remember that. Because he does know what's best, even if we can't figure it out. So I've asked over the series, I've asked several of you individually and and as a church, are you willing to trust God even when you don't agree with him? I don't always agree with him. He's made mistakes. I got a list of them. Are you willing to trust God even when you don't understand it or you don't agree? That you really, really down at the core level of faithfulness think God does know what's best. We also learned that the covenant revealed his character. The holiness of his character. It was, uh, I surprised some of you by mentioning that the Mosaic law was uh, easy. It was easy. Take any command. Pick any one. And there's no, there's, it's not hard to obey. Mixing wool and flax. Is that hard? Don't, bother, uh, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Is that hard to do? I asked the, uh, you know, if you find mold on the wall, which is one of their problems, do you scrape it off? Is that hard? What's hard about that? Take any of the 613 commands and they're all easy. They're very clear and they're very easy. And that surprised a bunch of you. Tells me what you've heard in sermons. I always thought the law was impossible to keep. 
It was impossible to keep, but not because of the law. The moment you say the law was impossible to keep, you're shifting all the blame to the law. No, no, no. The law was not impossible to keep. It was a very easy law. The problem is here. That's the problem. And the law reveals something about God. And I've used this picture. I used it last week with the pastors. And, uh, and they all started chuckling when they realized how true it is. I can step into your homes. I can step into your marriages. I can step into your work environment. And it doesn't take very long to start forming an opinion about what type of person you are. What your character is like. Are you, are you gentle? Are you harsh? you have lots of rules? Do you have more grace? Are you affectionate? Are you hard to get along with? It doesn't take very long to, to live in relationship with you that you can see this. It's very clear. Your, your character is revealed by the way you live life, by the, by the rules that you live by, by the commands that you put in place in your families. And that's what the law did. It shows us a character of God that is holy. He did not make the law impossible. That was never his goal. One of the things I want to talk about today is what was the goal of the law? We've gotten to the point now where we can see that the law was not the problem. This is the problem. So if that's the, pro- if that's the case, then why give us the law? Why even give it to us? As we moved into the New Testament, we saw several additional things. One is that the Old Testament believers... now. When I use this term, Old Testament, New Testament believer, be clear, all of the early Christians were Old Testament believers. And we should be as well. We should call ourselves Old Testament Christians. You know why? That's all they had. Their Bible was what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. That was their Bible. When Paul wrote Romans, he probably had three things available to him. He had the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, he had the Jewish writings of the day where they're wrestling with the topics that, of that era. And he had the oral tradition about Jesus. He didn't have the New Testament. He hadn't written it yet. That was their Bible, were the Jewish scriptures. That's why Luke 24, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, said he opens up the scriptures, the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature. And he argued clearly that everything that happened to him was prophesied. It was talked about. It was laid out very clearly. We have done a disservice over the years by keeping you out of the Old Testament. So never have a sermon where you're not in the Old Testament at least once. So you keep connecting the dots together. So these Christians in that first century, their only Bible was the Old Testament. They hadn't written a new one yet. What that means is the New Testament is an interpretation of the old in terms of what Christ did on the cross. That was what was a surprise. So they began to rethink these Old Testament passages because they had got many of them wrong. The Pharisees had missed the boat. Sadducees had missed the boat. The Zealots had missed the boat. And so they began to redefine the Old Testament in terms of what Christ did on the cross. That's what the New Testament is. It's a Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. We'll come back to that in just a minute. These Old Testament saints, the first century Christians, they look forward with anticipation and great joy for the moment when God would send his Messiah because the Messiah was going to bring the Spirit who would fill people. They look forward to that. 
They were excited about that. Sin would be forgiven. The exile would come to an end. When they were exiled after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the Jewish temple, when they were exiled, a few came back, Ezra and Nehemiah, but they recognized that the exile had not ended because the bulk of the nation had not come back and the glory of the Lord had not returned to the temple. So they were still in exile, and all the prophets had the same core message, you're in exile because of your sin. That's why God kicked you out of the land. You will not come back until sin is forgiven. That was a key part of their thinking. And so they were anticipating this time when slavery to sin uh, would, would stop. They would have this new exodus, and the uh, exile would come to an end. The gospel writers understood that Jesus' primary goal in coming into the world was to bring the Holy Spirit for his people. That's what's prophesied all throughout the old scriptures. The cross is not talked about very, very much at all. But the coming spirit is talked about a lot. We read several passages two and three weeks ago on it. You see, the cross is absolutely pivotal. I don't ever want to downplay it. But we often stop at the cross. The cross is intermediary. The cross, the purpose of the cross was to bring about forgiveness, to end the exile, to cleanse the temple so that the glory of the Lord could return. That was the purpose of the forgiveness of sin, was to cleanse the temple. Who's the temple? Us. So the cross did its job. It brought about forgiveness and atonement. That paved the way, that opened the door for Pentecost and the new covenant, the coming spirit, which is what the Old Testament prophesied. The Old Testament, I mean, the Old Covenant did not save us. It couldn't. So what was the purpose of the Old Covenant? We're going to get there. We're going to spend the rest of Lent looking at how Paul dealt with all these issues and brought them together. We're going to spend our time in the book of Romans. Let me say a word about Romans. You'll hear more about this in the weeks to come. But like I said, when Paul wrote, he had the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. That's what he had. And so his theology is actually very predictable. It's very easy to understand because you actually have the same theology. When you look at the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, you see the paradigm of God's saving work laid out for us. You know the story. What's the first thing that happens in Genesis 1 and 2? Creation. What's the next thing that happens in Genesis 3? The fall. I heard it. What's the next thing that happens? Humanity slides right off the cliff into all kinds of horrible sins. You have the flood, you have all that. Then Genesis 12, Abraham comes along, right? God's redemptive program. Then in Exodus 1 and 2, the enslavement in Egypt. And then Exodus 3, Moses is introduced. And the Exodus occurs. And then you get by the time you get to uh, Exodus 19, you have the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. That pattern, there's only one paradigm in Scripture. Only one. That's it. Creation, fall, redemption, You know the grand stories. Well, you can take and lay out the Pentateuch, and you can lay Romans right over the top of it. Passage by passage, Paul follows the exact same argument of the Pentateuch through the book of Romans. That was his Bible. 
He recognized that the paradigm, there's only one paradigm in Scripture that we have to go through in Exodus to be delivered from sin. We have to do that. He had misinterpreted it in a very literal way. And in Romans, he begins to explain what actually happened during that time. And so Romans is overlaid because the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, was Paul's Bible. So the question then that comes to the forefront that Paul had to wrestle with up front, which we're going to talk about today, if the law could not save, which it could not, then what was its purpose? Why? Seems like God had several options. He could have just wiped out humanity and started over again. Not sure that would have gotten him very much because the next group would have been the same boat the first group was in. Because if God really wants to have a people that truly love him, he has to give them freedom. Otherwise, we're robots. So that wasn't a very good option. So then he gives us a law and tells us to obey it. We can't. Is that a better option? Sounds like he gave us something impossible to do, doesn't it? Well, we're going to jump into it and see. To begin to answer this question, you have to understand that depravity comes not by disobeying the law. That's not what depravity. What brought depravity was worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Look with me in Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of everyone. Every person who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, well, we could add this in here, by every human from what has been made so that everyone is without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But rather, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, or a human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Those words right there in this section come right out of the Genesis account of creation. You see, we were told to rule over the creation. We were told to take care of it. We were told to serve it, but we were never allowed to worship it. And that's what happened. We are told to serve and take care of creation because it serves us and takes care of us. Those are the Hebrew words used in Genesis 1 and 2. We're never allowed to worship it. And that's what happened. So we began to worship creation rather than the creator. So the law was never designed... It was never designed to declare the righteousness of a person. Let's look a little bit later in Romans 3. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Do you see that? No one? Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So we start to get a glimpse into what the purpose of the law was. We become conscious of our sin. So then that raises the question, how on earth can we live holy lives? Paul's going to take several chapters to unravel all of this. And we're going to take a different chapter each week and begin to address this. But first, two weeks ago, we looked at the blessing that God brought to his creation through diversity. When he had the panel up here, how many of you were here for that? Most of you, I hope. 
Okay, good. That's what we're going to be talking about over here for lunch, is this whole concept of diversity. It is an essential, critical, necessary part, significant part of God's creation um, and His plan. Why? Why is it so important? And so we brought that into the discussion. Now I want you to look, see these several verses and notice how diversity and the movement of God through Jesus to expand, to broaden the net, to begin to include every people group on the planet in this discussion. Look at the language used, Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is the theme for the whole book. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You shouldn't be either, by the way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. Everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Every human. Or Romans 1.18. We just read this verse. Let's have it again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of everyone. Everyone's in the same boat. Romans 3.21. The gift that was brought by Christ is for everyone. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. Okay, pause on this verse just for a moment. There's no way we can, we can overstate how groundbreaking this is. Because the law was oriented toward a people group that wanted other people groups to come in and become like this, like them, and that all got shifted with Jesus. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned. All of us. We fall short of the glory of God. Abraham then enters the picture in Romans 4 to serve as a model for everyone since he was justified before the law was given. So it couldn't have been just for the Jews. That's Paul's argument. Romans 4.19. For in this blessedness, is this blessedness only for the circumcised? This, what he's talking about, what Christ did? Or also for the uncircumcised. We've been saying, we could put it here all along, we've been arguing all along that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, it was before. Before what? Before circumcision, before the law was given. The law was never meant to bring about redemption. Look at the next couple of verses. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. You're right. We've been there, haven't we? Now we're circling back. He would inherit the world. And that includes us. We are part of that inheritance. But through the righteousness that comes by faith. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Paul understood. He understood that Christ was changing things. Galatians 3. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. This was the surprise. That's why the Jerusalem Council struggled to make sense. The Spirit came to the Gentiles? What's that all about? We thought the Spirit was coming to the Jews. And boom, look at Cornelius and the other people. 
These Gentiles, they received the Spirit. They had to figure that out. So he announced the gospel in advance. This is right out of Genesis 12. All the nations will be blessed through you. That is the gospel. That's the gospel we believe, that we serve a living, true God who cares about every human on the planet. Every person out there, everyone. Everywhere I travel around the world, everywhere you've been around the world, he cares about every human on the planet. Is that good news? What do you think? Is that good news? This is the gospel right here. He announced the gospel in advance. There it is. You want to share the gospel with people? You want to share the gospel with your unchristian friends, your non-Christian friends? All the nations will be blessed through Jesus, through Abraham. Try that on for size. I think back about the way we shared the gospels back in the 60s and 70s. God has a wonderful plan for your life and you're a sinner going to hell. God uses anything. He uses anything. This is a more positive spin. God cares about every human on the planet. Every single one. So then what was the purpose of the law? Now remember that the Jews had been enslaved by the Egyptians. They'd been delivered through the Exodus, um, which was an act of sheer grace, by the way. God delivered them before he asked them to do anything. That's the pattern we see in every covenant in the Bible. God rescues you before he asks anything. He doesn't ask you to do something in order to be rescued, saved. That's not the way it ever works. God rescues you, which is the very nature of redemption, before he asks you to do anything. So why does he ask you to do something? Because that's what you're now created for. That's why. It's not a means of salvation. That's not it at all. But the Jews have been exiled because of their sin. They were once again enslaved. Paul got it. It's just that now they're enslaved in sin. That's what the exile did. It illustrated their failures. So Paul explains how this exile was actually the result of true enslavement brought about by Adam's sin. We are all enslaved in sin, and the Exodus story gives us a picture of what God cares about and what he's going to do. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Okay, let's admit the truth. We're stuck now. We are enslaved. I suspect you all have plenty of proof of that because you all sin. So if you want to know what God's going to do, look at the paradigm of the Pentateuch. That's what Paul did in the book of Romans. He understood what God was going to be doing through the Messiah by looking back at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This required a new and a more true exodus from enslavement to sin. That's next week, Romans 6. That had to happen. But first, we have to figure out the purpose of the law. Okay? So that we understand how we were given freedom. The purpose of the law is very simple. Two pieces to it. The law. One is in Romans 5. The very first thing was to show us how sinful we are and to prepare us for the cross. The law was brought in so that the sin or the trespass might increase. 
what? God is increasing sin? Yes, he is. Paul goes on and argues, how would I have known it was sin if the commandment had not been given to me? Thou shalt not covet. So yes, God is in the business of increasing or exposing our sin. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of the law, to increase or expose sin. The second verse, the second one is in Galatians, to be a guardian. The law was brought in so that the trespass, us uh, Romans, go on to Galatians. So that the law, the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This concept of a guardian was a person, usually a slave, who was responsible for the male children. Yeah, the female children got very little instruction back then. He would escort them to school and back. He wasn't a teacher, but he, he was a guide, if you will, a guardian that made sure that... What happens if there's no guardian with the boys? Are they going to make it to school? It's not going to happen. My mom got a report card one time. They got report cards every week when I was in school. And it said, uh, in English class, Jim was in class five days. Out of a six-week period. 30 days, I was in class five days. My mom said, well, I obviously got that wrong. She never checked. I wasn't a very good kid. It was a guardian. Once the child was of age, the guardian was no longer needed. In other words, the law exposed sin and it guided us to Christ. That's why he gave us the law. It's set, if you've ever been in a bowling alley when the kids play, they put those, those, those uh, things on the side, the boundaries, so the ball goes down the middle. That's what the law did. The law guided us right to Jesus. Because we figured out, here's the problem right here. It put sin on the table. Remember, the problem was not the law. It was in our hearts. The law was God's instrument to help us understand our need for the Messiah. That's what the law was there for. And it served its purpose. Paul got it. And so do you, because you can't keep it either. Without Jesus, we don't have much. In fact, without Jesus, we don't have anything. I know this sounds hopeless, but it's not. Imagine the culture in which Jesus entered our world. We talked about the great reversal of the Beatitudes, how culture looked down on the low, the poor, the lowly. There were many poor, many sick, many who were at the bottom without hope, much like the untouchables in the Hindu countries today. They're at the very bottom. They're spit on, despised, no hope. That was the world he entered into. This is the scene in which Jesus entered. And the world had been constructed within Judaism so that the law was the rule, was the canon. You want to become righteous? Come become like us. You have to come become like a Jew. And sometimes it just wasn't worth it. The cost was too great. Because they would lose everything. That's the world he entered into. And he had to change all of that and broaden the net to include every people group. 
so that holiness would look very, very different. It is precisely at this point in history that Jesus began to redefine what true holiness looks like. I'm going to read to you. I'm reading a book by Philip Yancey, The Jesus I Never Knew. If you've never read it, it's a great read. I'm going to read to you some of his thoughts here. The society was, in effect, a religious caste system based on steps toward holiness, and the Pharisees' scrupulosity reinforced the system daily. All their rules on washing hands, avoiding defilement, were an attempt to make themselves acceptable to God. Now, before you get too critical, how many of you feel that way? Pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm following the rules. Designed to make yourself acceptable to God. In the midst of this religious caste system, Jesus appeared. To the Pharisees' dismay, he had no qualms about socializing with children, sinners, or even Samaritans. He touched or was touched by the unclean, those with leprosy, the deformed, a hemorrhaging woman, the lunatic, the possessed. Although Levitical laws prescribed a day day of purification after touching a sick person, Jesus conducted mass healings in which he touched scores of sick people. He never concerned himself with the rules of defilement after contact with the sick or even dead. To take just one example of the revolutionary change Jesus set in motion, consider his attitude toward women. In those days, at every synagogue, Jewish men prayed this prayer, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. Oh, it's good to be a man. There are actually some times in life, like childbirth, where I say that. Women sat in, separate, in a separate section, were not counted in quorums, were rarely taught the Torah. In social life, few women would talk to men outside of their families, and a woman was to touch no man but her spouse. Yet Jesus freely associated with women and taught some as his disciples. A Samaritan woman who had been through five husbands, Jesus tapped to lead a spiritual revival. And he was the one that first asked her for help. A prostitute's anointing he accepted with gratitude. Women traveled with his band of followers, no doubt stirring up much gossip. Women populated Jesus' parables and illustrations, and frequently he did miracles on their behalf. According to one biblical scholar, Jesus violated the mores of his time in every single encounter with women recorded in the four Gospels. He's breaking new ground pushing God's plan in places it had not been seen to go before. Indeed, for women and other oppressed people, Jesus turned upside down the accepted wisdom of the day. Pharisees believed that touching an unclean person polluted the one who touched. But when Jesus touched the person with leprosy, Jesus did not become soiled. The leper became clean. When an immoral woman washed Jesus' feet, she went away forgiven and transformed. When he defied custom to enter a pagan's house, the pagan's servant was healed. In word and in deed, Jesus was proclaiming a radically new gospel of grace. To get clean, a person did not have to journey to Jerusalem. They didn't have to offer sacrifices, undergo purification rules. All they had to do was follow Jesus. That was it. Okay, now here's the thought. Listen to this. In short, Jesus moved the emphasis 
from an exclusive view of God's holiness. Here's the law. You have to become like us Jews. He moved the emphasis from an exclusive view of God's holiness to an inclusive view of God's mercy. He spread the net wide. He spread the net wide. Instead of the message, no desirables allowed, he proclaimed, in God's kingdom, there are no undesirables. The purpose of the law was to reveal our sin, to guide us to Christ, because we had no chance. That was the purpose of the law. So, when you're faced with your sin, does it produce humility? Maybe it produces a sense of defensiveness, justification, you dig in a little deeper. This is where you have a choice. We serve a gracious God who has given us freedom of choice. When you're exposed, when you're faced with your sin, it's easy to see the sin in the person next to us. Do you let it produce humility? Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for never giving up on your creation, ever. Thank you for doing whatever had to be done to expose our sin, to get it on the table in very real and honest ways, and to give us a guide that directed us right to your son, Jesus. Thank you for that. In his name we pray. Amen.